my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn me drawn his net around me. Though I cry I have been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no, in, no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side. I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build up a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only with the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity for the hand of God has struck, struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron on lead or engraved on, in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And then you will know that there is judgment. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Our text this evening is verses 25 and 26. A very familiar passage that Bill played it on the organ this evening, a beautiful aria from Handel's Messiah. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. May God add his blessing to his word. We are up in the catechism Consideration of the Catechism to Lord's Day 17. It's going through the Apostles' Creed, and it's up to the part in the Apostles' Creed where we confess that the Lord Jesus Christ, after three days, was risen again from the dead and ascended into heaven. After three days, he was risen from the dead. 
And so question and answer 45. How does the Christ's resurrection benefit us? And the answer is this. First, by his resurrection he has overcome death so that we might, he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power we are already now resurrected to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. Congregation, beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, I know a fellow in Florida who was a pastor in a rather liberal denomination, but he himself is a very conservative Christian. And he once made an observation to me that he thought that Job was the first book of the Bible. That Job was written before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, he thought Job was already written, was the first book of the Bible. Now, it's interesting that that's kind of a scholarly question and that It's a question Christians might discuss, and it's a question that may find Christians on both sides of the issue. It provides a good discussion, but there are some questions that we really can't discuss if we want to consider ourselves to be Christian. Some questions that are so foundational, so basic, that you either believe them or you don't. For example, what the Catechism deals with this evening is exactly that kind of question. How does the resurrection of Christ profit us? Well, you have to believe in the resurrection. You have to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ on the third day physically arose from the dead. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, you are not a Christian. You see, the Bible confronts us with this issue very clearly. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we read, says, Hey, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then my preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and we are of all men most miserable. And so we are speaking here of something that is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. Jesus Christ physically, bodily, after three days in the grave, arose from the dead. Now, that's beyond modern scientific inquiry. It's beyond common sense. It's beyond self-evident reason. But it is true. You know, one of the tragedies, profound tragedies of modern liberalism is that they think we can make the scriptures more palatable, more believable. And and the way you have to do it is to reinterpret the scriptures. There was a liberal theologian of the last century, Rudolf Boltman, and he said, resurrections don't happen. 
I don't know of anybody, and you don't know of anybody that was raised from the dead. Resurrections don't happen. So what do you do with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you want to make the gospel more palatable for modern man, what you have to do is reinterpret it. It's part of, actually, the mythology of Christianity. So when the disciples... Uh, spoke uh, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul spoke of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, it was something like this. It was like remembering Jesus as you wanted to remember him. Like you wake up in the morning and you had a dream at night and, and that dream may have, may have seemed to be so real. But in the end, it was only a dream. So the doctrine of the resurrection is kind of a pipe dream, a kind of pipe dream for Christianity. But if you want to call yourself a Christian, you'd better believe it. You'd better believe it because it's true. You see, the Bible doesn't put up with that nonsense, nor does the Apostles' Creed, nor does the Catechism. When, it's, when the Bible speaks of the resurrection, it means exactly that. It's not some kind of pipe dream. It's not some kind of myth. The Lord Jesus Christ arose from the grave in the traditional Orthodox greeting on Easter morning. He is risen, is met with the response of the church. He is risen indeed. That is foundational to the Christian faith. We serve a living Savior, and if you don't believe that, don't call yourself a Christian. Now this evening we have the wonderful testimony of God's servant Job. You know this text is of course uh, well known because Handel used it for one of the most beautiful arias of, of Messiah. And indeed uh, we think of it at Christmas time. I know that my Redeemer lives. And, and he shall stand on the, on the earth at the last day. Even though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So I want to consider with you this text this evening in the light of the catechism. We want to notice three things about it. Three things about this knowledge that we find Job expressing in this text. First of all, it is a heartfelt foundational knowledge. Secondly, it is an empowering knowledge. And thirdly, it is a victoriously comforting knowledge. It is, first of all, a heartfelt foundational knowledge. It is, secondly, an empowering knowledge. And last of all, it is a victoriously comforting knowledge. First of all, then, it is a heartfelt foundational knowledge. 
And it is indeed the basis for preaching. If you don't go out with the gospel, if you go out with the gospel, what is the good news of the gospel? It is not simply that Jesus Christ died for our sins, but it is also that God confirms that in his blessed resurrection, that he was raised from the dead and that he ascended into heaven. You know, there are those who consider Christ to be a great prophet, a great teacher, a good man who spoke of God and taught parables and was unjustly put to death by Roman authorities. He was crucified. End of story. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe that. He had many followers, and these followers wrote books about him, and these books were gathered together in the New Testament, and, and, and really he is a highly respected figure in history. But you know, there have been many people, thousands, maybe even millions of people who have been unjustly put to death. A few years ago, 25 men were beheaded on the banks of the Nile in Egypt. Their only crime was being Christian. But when you speak of the resurrection, those that reject that reject the heart of the gospel. But that is unbiblical theology without hope and without comfort. You know, when we read the book of Job, it raises many questions. And, and these questions are never really answered. Many of them are never really answered. And rightly so. Because these answers are in, in a profound way beyond our comprehension. Questions like, why do the righteous suffer? Or Satan's charge against God. Or, or against Job. Satan's charge was essentially this. Uh, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? A righteous man. Have you considered him? And what's Satan's response? Satan's response is this. And it's a response that continues to this day. It has its origins in the devil, this position, this point of view. What is Satan's response? Well, Satan's response is this. I know why God, why Job serves you. I know, I know why he serves you. You've surrounded him with a wall of blessings. This is the reason Job serves you. It's, it's, it's kind of a quid pro quo. You know, that's the Latin phrase, which, which essentially means, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. Why does Job serve you? Well, he serves you for his own ends. He serves you because you are a God that blesses the righteous. That man is blessed who fears the Lord. You are a God that surrounds him with a wall of blessings. But take away those blessings and see how long he serves you. You see what's at issue here? The integrity of the righteous. The integrity of serving God. 
And, and, and these, these questions, really, people of God, are, are quite contemporary, aren't they? Quite contemporary. Because all you have to do is watch TV and some of these TV celebrity evangelists will say, well, you know, if you send me some money, God will bless you. And, and, and you will be blessed and, and it will multiply 10, 50, 100 times. Why serve God? Well, because God will bless you. Why serve God? Well, because if you're sick, God will heal you. And if that doesn't happen, people think they have an excuse for not serving God. You say it's a quid pro quo. I'll devote myself to a life of good works and piety and prayer, and I expect God to reciprocate. I expect God to bless me, bless me with riches and, and bless me with health and bless me with strength and bless me with influence, just like he blessed Job. It's interesting that essentially, at its core, Job's three friends echoed Satan's position. It's very interesting, isn't it, you know, that that, that, that perception of God continues even today. And God permits, and yet God permits Satan. Go ahead, take away Job's blessings. He loses his flocks and his herds. The Sabaeans come and, and run off his cattle his sheep and cattle and camels, and he loses them all. He has seven sons and three daughters. His children are at a feast, and they're all killed. He loses his family. His wife, his wife turns against him. And she says, Job, if that's the way God treats you, curse him and die. His three friends come to visit him. Job is reduced to being covered in boils, painful boils, sitting on the edge of the town dump, dogs coming to lick his sores, his friends, his three friends come and they don't recognize him. And they, they, they are so appalled at his condition that they, they sit with him for a week, for a period of seven days, and they don't say anything. They don't know what to say. And then they begin their speeches. And the speeches are essentially this. Job, you must have sinned. 
you must have gone, you must have sinned against God, and that's why you're being punished. God treats the wicked this way, but but there's something wrong with you. Maybe you're hiding your sins somewhere. You're not as innocent as you want to present yourself. His three friends turn into his accusers because God would not behave so unjustly. We've got God figured out. There's just something wrong with this, Job. So either you are wrong or God is wrong. And we can't blame God, so it must be you. So forget about claiming to be innocent, you're not. If you continue to protest your innocence, you are a liar and a hypocrite. It's the attitude that the Pharisees, the disciples, expressed also, you know, in the New Testament during the course of Jesus' ministry, huh? Master, why was this man born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? Who's responsible for this? Why is he suffering blindness? Why has this calamity come upon him? And then Christ says, neither so that God's glory may be revealed in him. And then the Lord heals that blind man. You see, in the midst of all this, we come to the words of our text. Job, in the midst of his misery, in the midst of his suffering, says, I know. I know something. I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that my Redeemer liveth. That's a heartfelt knowledge. That is a foundational knowledge that Job possessed thousands of years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Why am I serving him? Because I have a redeemer. Why do I serve God? Because I have a redeemer. And he's a living redeemer. And though he slay me, yet will I serve him. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know that my redeemer liveth. You know, the Apostle Peter in his Pentecost sermon expressed that, huh? Men of Israel, let me tell you something. The one whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. He is risen. Secondly, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is an empowering knowledge. It's an empowering knowledge in that it represents the Father's stamp of approval on the work of the Son. It represents the fact that in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we may be made right with God. The ransom has been paid and has been paid completely. Now, there's not too many boys and girls here, but I was thinking about that. Young people, when you go to the store, what happens? Well, you go to the checkout counter. Your mom or dad pays the bill and walks away. No, 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 no. You need a receipt for that transaction. You need a receipt that is proof that you indeed did pay for those groceries. You know, I heard a story once about a, a young boy that was going to have a birthday and he wanted a bicycle. And, and so his dad said, okay, son, I'm gonna, I'll buy you a bicycle for your birthday. They go to the store and they come to the counter and, and the fellow at the counter is changing the tape in the cash register. And, and so the son is really, really antsy to take the bike out. So the guy at the counter said, well, go ahead and take the bike out to your, to your dad's car. You can maybe ride it on the parking lot. And so he goes out of the store and he's all excited. He's got this new bike and he gets in the parking lot and, and someone says, hey, are you stealing that bike? I'm going to call the police. And the boy is, is upset about this. And then his father comes out. And he says, hey, what are you doing to my son here? Here's the receipt. Here's the receipt. I've paid for that bike, and I'm giving it to him. It's his bike. So be on your way. Don't bother us. The matter has been settled. The case is closed. Now, you see, that's something of what the Apostle Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 8 when he, he asked this question, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who makes us right through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has paid the price. He's had the receipt that he can present to the Father because he was raised from the dead and that was the Father's stamp of approval. In him, we are made right. It is in the resurrection that his work is confirmed. You see, that's what the hymn writer wrote in And Can It Be That I Should Gain, huh? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. Now that's empowering knowledge, you know. Isn't it interesting that Job, a righteous man, in terms of earthly godliness, in terms of earthly righteousness, he was far better than probably you or I or anyone here. But he also, 
he also was human. And he was conceived and born in sin. And the righteousness that is acceptable in God's eyes is a righteousness that goes far beyond any kind of righteousness we could hope to attain here on earth. And so what does Job say? I need a redeemer. He recognized it. He recognized it. I need a redeemer. He was looking for someone that could impart that righteousness and that someone was the Lord Jesus Christ. You can try all your life doing good works, but you're never going to put God in your debt or earn a place in heaven. Job knew that, and his wife and his friends didn't. And so finally, finally he realizes that in the end, that Redeemer is going to stand upon the earth. And even though worms destroy his body, yet in his flesh he shall see God. He saw something of the hope and the promise that is ours in Christ. You know, in chapter 38 to 40 of, of the book of Job, the last few chapters of the book, there's, there's a very interesting thing because God confronts Job. And, and this victory that Job looked forward to was tempered by his earthly existence. And, and God, he, he, sees, he sees God in all his glory. And, and God confronts Job and he says, well now, Job, you got a complaint? You got some kind of problems with me, you know? You're unhappy with the way you're being treated? Go ahead, make your complaint. Go ahead, let me hear it. And then we see in chapter 40, verse 2, what is Job's reaction? He sees God in his glory. God says to Job this whole series of questions, you know, and they're astounding questions. Yeah, were you here when I created the Leviathan? Hey, Job, when I made the world, did I check with you? If I make a decision to do something, are you my counselor? Do I see what Job has to say about it? And what is Job's reaction? He puts his hand over his mouth. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say to my creator. I have nothing to say to the greatness of the glory of God. I don't know how to respond. What God ordains is always right. He puts his hand over his mouth and later on it says he repents in dust and ashes. You see, when we look to the Lord for redemption, then we know that we are free to serve him in thankfulness. And that's a victorious knowledge because it's a great comfort when we face our own mortality 
or the trials of life. You know, death is an enemy. It's an enemy for everyone. We live in the shadow of death. We live in, in the fact that we are confronted day by day with our own mortality. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, says the Apostle Paul, in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's all kinds of things in society in our lives that seem to be out of control. Seem to be wrong, seem to be askewed. You look around the world and you think, there's an awful lot that's broken. And then the comfort of the resurrection is this. The profit of the resurrection is this. We serve a risen Savior. And that comfort that Job had is our comfort today in the midst of all the troubles and difficulties of life. We hear this glorious, glorious confession that Job made thousands of years ago. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that one day in my flesh I shall see God. I shall see God because Christ is risen. I too shall rise. He is the first fruits of them that sleep. That is the hope that Job had and that is the victorious hope that belongs to all those who are in Christ. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Amen. O oh Lord our God, how thankful we are for the comfort of your word, the comfort of the resurrection, that we may know that death will not have the last word in our lives that we serve a risen Savior and that we share that great and glorious confession and testimony that your servant Job made thousands of years ago, that those who are in Christ may say, I know that my Redeemer liveth, that he shall stand upon the earth and that in my flesh I shall see God. How thankful we are for that comfort. How thankful we are for that hope. How thankful we are for the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear us now, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen.